This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High Performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm, craziness, craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down, to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency on Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency on Demand, and this is your host, Monique. Welcome back to Efficiency on Demand, everyone. Today, I have a guest that I'm really excited to share her story, especially because we have one thing in common. We are writing a book. Actually, she's writing, I think, her fifth book already. And she also helped me to figure out a little bit more about the title that I want to use for my book. And so I'm super excited to have her on the show. And she's going to share a little bit more about got her to write her books and well we will figure it out together and um, please welcome to the show Otakara Kletke. Hi how are you? Good hi Monique thank <laughs> you for having me on a show super excited to be here with you. Thank you for taking the time today. Before we dive into the whole story first of all I always ask my um, guests on the show to please tell everyone who are you what do you do where are you from and where are you now? <laughs> Okay, so as you said, um, I'm an author, like books are my world in many ways. And so a lot of things that actually goes with the books, which is not just the book writing itself, but it's I'm a self-published author. So with the self-publishing and I help some other people also, but it all comes down to being a bookworm. So I'm a huge bookworm. I ori- I'm originally from your neighboring, or your original neighboring country, right? So we're original neighbors because you're from Germany and I'm from Czech Republic. But just like you, I have traveled a lot. I lived a lot of places. So actually, I live in the United States in Oregon, which is actually fourth country I lived in. So, and I've been here now for the longest time ever, for 18 years. I love so it. I in United. So how did you get there? And please don't say by plane. <laughs> that's my usual response when people ask me like how did you get to Thailand I'm like well I got on a plane <laughs> so but what did oh you goodness. get what did you what did make you decide to move to the US I was gonna say the plane because that's what I do too as a response <laughs> but you okay you got me so I used to come here uh, like once a year I grew up till I was 13 it was still communism I was in Czechoslovakia. So we couldn't travel much. And I had like really sickly childhood. So on top of everything, I've been like very much ill. So I had the desire because I couldn't, I had the desire to travel a lot. And so once I could, I did. And in uh, 2001, I went to Florida, which was like my third trip already to Florida. I was in the wintertime because I really... They do not like spending time in Prague in the wintertime that was cold and ugly and I would be sick the whole winter, so may as well take the time off and go somewhere warm, right? So I went to Florida and I met 
who ended up being my future husband, who was from Oregon. So, and we dated for a year and a half. It was not like a lot of time people think like, oh, so you met him and you stayed in States. I'm like, no way I would stay in States. Like I, we actually dated for a year and a half, but back then that's pre-Skype era in 2001. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievable as it is. So the, the phone bills ended up a year and a half later. The phone bills ended up being really huge. And that year I, in, I traveled like and mine he live we live in a west coast so it's not even like flying to east it's actually much longer to really get here and so we were kind of put in front of the situation and we said like so we either got a breakup or we have to get married and the loved one and here i am (laughs) we have a three-year-old daughter to prove that yeah i love it Tell me a little bit about your childhood because, um, yeah, so we are neighbors and we are actually really close neighbors. So you're originally from Prague, right? Actually not from Prague. I grew up oh. in like Moravia in a little village. So I uh-huh. it was about an hour and a half from Prague, more close right. to Brno, if you know that. Area. Ah, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I heard of it. So, but I'm from Dresden. So it's like an hour mm-hmm. from Prague, just right over the border. Right. And we have a concentration camp right between us. This <laughs> is not the nicest thing, but obviously like, and this is, this is one thing that we in a school trip have visited. So it wasn't fun. But, um, so tell me a little bit about your childhood. I think you're a little bit older than me. I think. Yeah, I think I am. I'm 33. I think you were born after, you were born already after communism ended, right? I'm I don't know. This is Junior. This is I'm 43. Sorry. Okay, is, right. I'm really like, I'm like so, so not worried about it. But I, I have nothing to do. Like, I'm proud of my age. I'm proud of my age because I think I'm like fit Absolutely. and fit and I do well. So, yeah. so I never mind not to say that. But anyway, I'm 43. So, so like I said, when I was growing up, it was still communism and it was, I was 13. So you were in diapers when communism ended, it sounds like, right? Like, yeah, so, really so I was born in 86 and Germany reunion was when I was three and a half years old. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah I remember David Hasselhoff on the wall, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, that was cool. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so that was like, like I said, like that was kind of when I was growing up. It was still, it was still communism. So I was obviously kind of affected, but not at the same time. Not in a way people think. People always assume it was like very different. And especially as a kid, like you don't really know any difference. I always tell them like, so yeah, we had a two percent and whole milk and only one brand. You have more brands of it, but it's not like we actually truly suffered. Like so, people think like we really suffered, which I don't think really was at least not in not in a way that I would have any kind of recollection. Mm-hmm. But it was a different lifestyle. It was it it definitely brought a different life. And like I said, like I always wanted to travel, which at the time was limited to only certain countries we couldn't travel west and uh so for my personally i had like since i was like a little baby i was starting to accumulate all kinds of health issues that when you're a kid you're kind of under the thumb of your parents and so if they so much choose to that she they, they deem you sick they deem you sick and keep you in bed even if you don't want to so like i just could not wait and that was the one thing like i just could not wait and once i 
once I got 18, I got myself a passport. I had a passport, I think, like the day after I turned 18. It was the same thing with the driver's license. Passport mm-hmm. and driver's license were... Ex- I had no car. I had nothing to drive, but it was extremely important for me to actually own a driver's license. Yeah. And travel. And so I was like, this time I actually went to the States. I was like, I'm born in the summer. And so I think I was 18 and a half and I went to, I went to Florida the first time in the winter time and then I actually like it because I consider it kind of a cheap way to spend winter but like if you if you know how to find some cheap accommodation you can find something between Cuban and people and things and get to yourself and, and spend in a nice tropical places and and so every time I would travel I would just like make sure like sort of inner thing that I cannot get sick that I have to travel be healthy so I would and it was really funny because I was so scared to upset my parents. I remember the first time I was flying out, I called from the airport to my sister and I asked her if she can tell my parents that I'm flying away, that I have a flight ticket and I'm not returning for two months and I have no idea where I'm going to live and I have no idea what I'm going to do really. But my return flight was two months later and I till this day remember she was like, there is no way I'm telling that to them. You got to do it yourself. And it ended up being like such a funny thing that by the time I would be like visiting my parents, because I, when I was 18, I moved to college to Prague, mm-hmm. that I left because of the traveling, because there was not enough time for studying if you have to travel a lot. So, so when I would go visit my parents, by the time I think 20 years old, they would always ask me where I came from because they got used to it. It's kind of like my guilt trip to come like visit my family after I get back home. Yeah. And then uh, when I was, I think, 24, I met who is my husband now. So then kind of it's got more one way, like it was the the Oregon. And uh, later I moved here, had a daughter and went through the whole kind of change and moving my life into United States on much more of a permanent basis. And I settled down. So how was that? Because I think, uh, and for me, it's always really interesting to see it from a cultural perspective. So coming from communism, but then you already had the change when you were 13 from what was Czechoslovakia to Czech Republic. And then you went from Czech Republic to United States. And that's obviously like what the world knows from like, you know, the, the country where you can achieve anything, the whole freedom type of thing. But what was it really for you? How did you experience that when you moved over there? And especially as a foreigner, how did life look for you to integrate there? I, by then, I, when I was like 19 or something, 20, 19, 20, 21, I don't know. No, I was 21, 22. Oh, wow. I can't really like figure out the age. But at that time, I had the opportunity to go live in Austria and study like a zero year at the university, at the Vienna's university to just study German. And so so I went and I lived in Austria for, for that year, studied German a little bit, Austrian German. Please don't test me. It's been <laughs> no, a long I time. Won't. <laughs> I don't think I understand I much actually... Austrian German. <laughs> but... But anyway, I was I was all right, and towards the end of it, I was able to like like function in German too. And so I was already living in like so I lived in Vienna, mm-hmm. 
And so that was the one thing. And then I was constantly traveling. I was traveling like I was addictively. It like became uh, like I would have a notebook and I would write down like where I went. And like I would literally put down the miles I covered if I was somewhere, like what mileage. And it was like my little pride pride possession journal it was not to show off anywhere or to anyone it was extremely actually private but I would have there like how much and I would have like per week what did I cover what grounds I cover and so I became this like obsessive explorer so it was not like going from Czech to state and then in um, I think like 98 or 99 somewhere around there I had an opportunity to go live in Brazil and so I lived over winter time it was a shorter time but I managed to spend like the Christmas and New Year's which was absolutely wonderful because they have a great tradition like if, if that would be like where I would want to spend my winters Brazil was awesome so and I and I <laughs> I know like you have a huge connection to South America so yeah. like I'm sure you know so that was that was lots of fun and so when I went to states because I was traveling to Florida I was a little aware, although I would most my time spent in Miami, which they called a capital of Cuba. Mm. So you don't really, like, I realized, like, how little you get by with speaking English there. It's like most places don't even speak English. And so it was, it was truly not a real picture of United States, I think, only to, like, certain level. And then once I went to Oregon and I'm in high mountain desert and so I'm exactly in the places where the old cowboys used to be and so people who live here are the tough descendants of those outlaws right so it's very it's very different it's very um, so culturally very very different cannot even compare to Florida and so they were definitely things but I'm sure that especially you, since you traveled so much, you can agree that like once you start traveling a lot, you sort of end up being like like a sponge. You just go in there with no and to any country, any place you go with not much expectations, and you just try to absorb and you try to see the culture without judgment and without much of like if you're trying to live there, you gotta try to. There are things that definitely I could be upset about but if I would be upset about them it would not allow me to take them and put them in like some space like for example to me it was like so I came to states then we with my husband we had to we had to get married and then it took a couple of years before I even got a work permit so I stayed home I couldn't work and I had to do everything by the book because I was like I could have lost my green card it was actually more riskier for me to 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 do something than if I was like completely illegal because everything I was very controlled this way would be very controlled so so I had to make sure I would get a green card would get a work permit and I realized that there was really not much of a chance of doing anything because a I'm here with an accent and I'm in a place where nobody has accent. There might be like some Mexicans who have some Mexican restaurants, but there are no foreigners. There is no colored people. It's a very single type of people from skin color to who they are, where I live. And so there was not much opportunities for me to, if I were to look for a job to have anything but like 
some minimum wage type of job. And it was not something that was less than definitely resonating with me. And so uh, first I stayed home and then we had my daughter and I stayed home with her and I homeschooled her. So I stayed home for so many years. It was almost crazy. It was like, so not me because when I came from Czech, I was a very social person and I, I, worked even on TV, I worked in a newspaper, so I always liked languages, always loved learning languages, always loved learning from other people, other cultures, very communicative, and here I was, like really, none of that was, not even available, people were nice and kind, but it's not like anybody would like hand out and say like, hey, do you want to have a cup of coffee with me? Because all I was, was just this, you know, to them, I was this Eastern European wife of, of Jeremy and and uh, and I'm not saying like that's this is the point what I was trying to make like I'm not saying I'm blame them it's just how it is mm-hmm. and so eventually as my daughter started growing older and it it was really being heavy on me it was very hard to be secluded because my husband would be at work all day and then mm-hmm. he comes home and he's a guy so he's not gonna like really to come home and talk and I'm there all day with a baby with a little child and then we homeschooled so. So I came to the point that like, I just realized I have to do something and there really was not any kind of job. I would like feel myself fulfilled other than actually just going to have a job. And it was not something I really wanted to do. And so I always wanted to write a book and never really done it. And my brother is a writer. He's an author and he's got tons of books in Czech Republic and he's very successful and so when I was in Czech, I was, because he's nine years older, I was a little bit intimidated because his first book was right when I was like, right after communism was the, his first book out. So it was a little bit of like, I wouldn't say in a shadow, but it was like harder for me because it seems like, like he is the one who does that, right? Like not mm-hmm. me in a family. And so, and there I was like fast forward, uh, fast forward, you know, another 20 years. And this was, I was 39 years old. And I, the next year I was turning 40 and I remember this happened on a New Year's Eve of the the next year and I'm I'm turning 40 in July. So it was seven months ahead when I decided to write a book and give myself a book for my birthday. And so it literally came to me giving myself a permission to suck. I was like, I'm going to be 40. I have nothing to lose. I have like really like, not like well, I didn't have a chance to create any kind of like close friendships. I didn't have a chance to build any kind of like big life for me. Like what, what can I lose? Like, even if it completely sucks and nobody buys it and nobody wants it, I will write this book. And so I did, it came out. I didn't manage to make it for my birthday. It was about two weeks after when it finally came out, but I spent those, you know, I spent those seven months working on that book and and then it's like for really I never put on that book condition and it became like my almost my rule like I hate it's harder to do it now it's almost harder I never put on that book a condition it would make me money it was just like I just want to have a book and I I can suck it might be bad and whatever but I want to have this book and so I and the book came out and then like all of a sudden, and I had no idea about marketing at that time. And the people just started liking the book and they started talking about the book and the book started selling like, like really enormously well, like 
to the point, like at that time I had like a little, I was working for a non-profit for exchange students. So it was like a little bit like the work I could do like from home. There was no set hours and it was not much money in it, but like I even had to leave that. And so that was what actually turned me in a full-time author at that time, because I just realized that the book actually could made me a good living, something I didn't even expect. And it was making monthly royalties. And all of a sudden, if things happen and I would take the time off, I would be getting money every month. And it was like, wow, this is really awesome. This is exactly what I wanted. And so, so, and, and I just realized that between authors, there is, I just love the people. I really love the community of people who write books. It's, they're awesome people, always willing to help. And they have a really good sense of humor. So, <laughs> and unless I don't they're Sherman. <laughs> just like me. Then everybody, like everybody who writes book has a good sense of humor. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you just have a funky sense of humor and it's, it's just fun. It's fun to be around authors. So, and, and it's odd sense of humor too. But yeah, and then uh, so after the first book, I went through like, you know, the ebook and normal book. And then I hired a narrator and had an audio book and, and the audio book became like really successful. And so did the narrator after my book, which was really awesome too. And so like now she's That's like awesome. super busy. It was like her second book she did. And now she's done like crazy amount of books ever since she narrated. So it's really cool because like she's like became this like really huge narrator so yeah and I like it and it's something that like I always kind of suffered internally from having an accent because everybody could recognize I I don't belong the moment I like said the first sentence right so Mm. and I know a lot of people don't like don't mind or they would say like and actually it's funny but it always bug me people say like but your accent is so sexy and it like I did it. It was not what I wanted to be known by. Right. Okay. Let's talk about that because I think it's really, really funny. Those perceptions about like accents. So you think your accent makes you not belong while other people say it's sexy. And I think, for example, my accent, like when Germans hear me speak English, they don't hear that I'm German because I don't have this cold cut German English accent anymore you you do hear it by a few words and a few pronunciations but English people know that I'm not native English by exactly those few pronunciations but they can't put me in a box I'm not pronouncing it British enough and not Irish enough, and not Australian enough, but I have a mix of something all. And they're like, I can't put you in this box. So they're really intrigued. But then they're also kind of like, this, this is too much work to figure out where you're from. So where are you from? You know, <laughs> it's really funny. Sometimes. I have the same. And I have so, the same thing because I've been here long enough that like, I don't really have the like super hardcore, like Czech accent. Yeah. But people do like, sometimes they go like you Slavic somewhere. Like they'll go like you somewhere that they cannot, they cannot really put a thumb down on where I'm from either. Right. So and it's, so it's, it's really, it's really funny. So talk to me about why you think this, and we, I'm having questions about this book thing too, but let's, let's loop back a little bit. So why do you think accents make us feeling so excluded sometimes? I think it's personal because I know quite a lot of people who are from other countries who live here, who 
don't have. And even they themselves, they would go like, you know, like I, I'm okay with that. I have an accent and I'm okay. And that makes you unique and makes you stand out. And to me, it was just that I want to stand out. It's not that I don't. I just don't want to stand out because of the accent. Like I mm -hmm. want to stand out with my work. I want to stand out with other things. I don't necessarily want to stand out with the accent. And and it's funny because books allow me not to have an accent, right? right. They actually allow me to, to make my living using English and not have accent in it. Hmm. And even like my narrator, it's like really cool because I said like that's why it was no brainer to me when some authors are deciding, do you want to have a narrator? Do you want to narrate it yourself? Like I knew immediately I want to have a professional narrator. So in my case, I don't know. I just guess it's why I don't like it. And it's maybe because of the area where I live. If I lived in New York or somewhere there, it would be different if I was in San Francisco, but I'm in like small mountain town town in Oregon and so a lot of people never traveled and so when I go when I go like, let's say I go to like bigger city people go like oh you have very little accent here I was constantly hearing your accent's so thick you know and like where are you from and then I go Czech Republic and they go where <laughs> the Czech, oh, is that oh, a country oh, oh Czechoslovakia the 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 part of Russia Right. And I'm like, the Russia, it's its own country. It was to, if you speak about the ex-Soviet Union and no, we were never, but you were part of the Soviet Union. No, we're not like, yeah, we were a communistic country, but we were not a country that belonged to Soviet Union. And so this became such a repetitive thing. And, and people would be asking, so are you so happy to be in America and be in this free country? And, and, and it just became something that like, I really did not like. I, I, don't like when people ask me where I'm from as like the first sentence, like you'd go in a store and you ask the person in a, working in a aisle, do I design them? And their response is, where are you from? Yeah. So, oh so my. Those things, it just became <laughs> annoying in a way. And because I travel, like it became like very much like that somebody, I always said, and maybe this is why, like I always said that in States, if I was African-American, if I was Hispanic, it would be extremely inappropriate for someone to point it out and then go like, why your skin is so dark? Like, where'd you come from? But if they take the voice, it's mm. totally okay. And mm. like, I just, it's like, it's like the xenophobia, it's on like the scale of like the racism. And it's kind of, I guess, how I personally felt it. And it might be my own, like I said, like there are people who handled it handle it like better or maybe it's the area I lived in but at the same time it became one of the things that in the end went and brought me and led me to where I am today so it's not like I regret it it's just yeah it's just like one of those things that like might be a little painful to you personally right uh, that I carry within me But I also understand that they are the reasons why mm -hmm. I'm where I am today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting because um, I don't have to think with my, my accent. I just find it funny when people try to guess where I'm from. And I'm like, nope, no, that's not. No, no, that's also not it. Nope, no, nope, good, good try. And then I say like, well, I'm from Germany. But the very first question, 99% of the time is, oh, which part? And then I say, like, well, I'm from Dresden. Oh, I don't know where that is. Is that east or west? And I'm like, well, it's Germany. 
But if you are trying to ask me if that was the former East part or the former West part, yeah, that's what I want to know. I'm like, hmm, well, it's still Germany. So we have one Germany right now and also for the past 30 years. But I was born in the former East. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, and that's always a reaction. Oh, and I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> it's like, what does it even mean? Oh, like, what if I said West, you know? What if I said South or North? Because it's it, like, there, there are four the directions. Crack. And so it's, All of the- to be very honest, it's super funny. But in the first years of my traveling, I found it so funky because people were so obsessed with this East and West thing in Germany. And I have experienced a lot of discrimination inside of Germany from West Germans because I was East German. There was a lot of discrimination against my East German accent. I got paid less consistently because I was from East Germany. That was even in the contract, which is not legal, but it was what it is, you know. I was, I was, I had violent encounters because I'm from East Germany. I got beaten up. I got kicked out of a whole village uh, it's it's weird and people don't know about that but there there was still this whole obsession and that's why I was always like well I don't know what you mean we are one Germany and people are like no 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 you know you had a wall there I'm like no shit man but the wall is not there anymore and it's we so don't easy. want it my parents both of my parents born 60 and 61. They were born literally the year that the wall was built and they had 30 years of the most painful time growing up. When the wall came down, they were 30 and 31 and um, or 29 and, and 30. And they didn't know shit about the world, you know? They just knew if they come too close to the wall, they got shot in the face to death. That's just like, they couldn't leave their hometown for 30 years they were not allowed to travel within their own region they had to apply to leave their hometown they had to apply to see their family member outside of the town this kind of thing you know outside of the town that yes is, that definitely we did not have in Czechoslovakia you could definitely travel within like the, the Czechoslovakia it was a little bit different for Dresden itself because it was such a yeah so there Your was a lot town, of right you have a port Dresden no. doesn't have it like because it's a huge hub for like uh, bringing stuff. Like I know, like the, the things get shipped out from Dresden. That's to Hamburg. Oh, that's on the See, other end of the river. <laughs> yep, that's up the river. But the thing is, like, you know, the problem was like Dresden was the it was is the city that was bombed the most in the Second World War. And it's in like, it was in this valley. They were cut off from any newspapers, from any radio, from any TV that was even from the west side of Germany, which the rest of East Germany had, but Dresden didn't have it. And so that was mm. like, it was one of the things they tried to isolate it even more where, for whatever reasons. So anyways, it was like a huge thing. So when I started traveling, for example, my parents freaked out because obviously they didn't know, you know, like they thought I'm going to die for, for all this type of reasons, you know, because they were never allowed to travel. And I remember that we actually traveled to Hanover when after the reunion, I think it was like maybe 
three or four years after the German reunion, we traveled there. And that was just a whole thing. Like this was a whole, this was a family event, you know, like to visit our aunt that was living on the west side of Germany. It was like, man, we celebrated that. Deal. <laughs> it was like such a huge deal. It was like, it was crazy. But anyway, so I can relate to that, to the question of like, where are you from? And when I say Germany, it's just a follow-up question of, is it east or west? And I'm like, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. But oh it, yeah, that's to me like the similar thing with the, the like when they when I when they finally figure out like the Czech Republic and no, it's not part of the Russia. And you're like, are you Eastern European? I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, yes, you are. I'm like, no, I'm not. Czech Republic, it's Central Europe. It's considered Central yeah. Europe. And I was like, yeah, but you know what I mean? I'm like, no, East is a geographical term. You mm-hmm. are using political terms from history. Yeah. But if you don't know a current politics, don't bring here a history because the Czech Republic lies in a Central Europe. There's actually the very central point is in Slovakia that is west of us. So very technically, we are on the west side of that Central yeah. Europe. We're not even on like, you know, we're not even on the east side of it, but we belong to the Central Europe. And like people try to convince me and like, yeah, but you know, like what I mean, like, I'm like, yeah, I do. But like, why are you bringing here like political history? It's a political, you're bringing him old political term, east, west, just like you say, it's a geographical term. And if you want to just stay accurate with the geographical term, there's right. one Germany right now. You're right. For right. Sure. I can tell you one thing. Do you know how, how Dresden is called in Czech? Tell me. Drážďany. Oh, what does Drag-jale. it mean? Does it Dresden. have a different meaning? It's just, oh, okay. it's just a, oh, it's like it's like you know, like Col it's Colleen. Like we had, like we gave Czech names to yeah. just like Prague. It's Praha, Praha in Czech. Yeah. So like Dresden, it's just Drážďany. I love it. Just, Sounds true. Nice. A lot of our train ends there. It has like the yeah. ending that goes like through the country and ends on the border and ends in yeah. uh, Drážďany. Yeah. Was always on the train station, the final station, <laughs> Drážďany Dresden. We are so close to the border. It's crazy. But it's so, you know, it's so interesting. Now I actually turn this around. So when people ask me, I literally tell them I was born behind the wall. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because it makes sense to who I am today, because obviously how my parents raised me. But I also say, but today there's only one Germany. So if you ask me where I'm from, I'm from Dresden. And that is in Germany. There is no East and West anymore. It's been 30 years and hopefully that's going to stay forever. You know, there's like this one Germany. So, and so I think because I take this question away from them by explaining it that way, as soon as they ask me, where are you from? It makes it, it makes it less awkward kind of. And also for me, it's just, all right, I got it out of the way. And they don't need to ask yeah, me. Yeah. They don't need to ask me something about all of this because, unless also then some people really are great, great <laughs> conversational partners, and they go straight into, oh, so you're from the Nazi Germany, and then I'm like, well, thanks. <laughs> that that is um, I had a nice conversation <laughs> with you. Uh, have a nice day. <laughs> so, I I I did have some people who when I started the conversation well this way and they were straight oh so you're from the Stasi and I'm like huh okay all right so anyways let's talk about I wonder today (laughs) 
I wonder to their like mind if West or East Germany is the Nazi Germany. Which Germany was the Nazi one? To, to their like thinking. That's the point, right? Like exactly, right? People just don't like, and that's the point where I just opt out of conversations like this because they don't know about history and they pick up like one thing, like. And then they think they know it all. In Germany, we call this Halbwissen, which is like half knowledge. So you know a little bit, a tiny bit, but you pretend you know it all about a subject. And then you use the tiny bit that you have in argumentations or in conversations, and you you try to be superior. And so it's really funny that... (laughs) I see this, like we had this conversation before we started recording. I see this right now happening in like this protest and whatever. They use German sentences from the Nazi time to protest against something that has nothing to do with this sentence. And they just don't know enough about like this whole context and they use it for their good, but they forget to use it when this context would be correct. So I'm talking about they use it in this protest against this whole virus thing, but they forget about using this same thing in the context of school shootings in America, a black man being killed on the street, shocking, and then those white men who killed him, just what happened to them? Are they, are they getting charged for it or not? And then people suddenly forget that the context is just as important to use there than when they want to get out of their homes for the virus. But then they are suddenly being like, wait, what? No, 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 no. This, this has nothing to do with the Nazi Germany. The virus does, but killing black men who want to go chalking does not. And I'm like, ah, uh, you're really? getting something wrong here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, um, you're getting this totally wrong. And so this is why Halbwissen, or half knowledge, if you want to translate word by word, is so dangerous often, you know? Um, yeah so I think absolutely I just, absolutely it's it's actually I wanted to find that as a word for it and it's like the first name and there is a Kruger effect I remember the Kruger is the other side oh um, I think I know what you mean the yeah. something and, and the Kruger and actually I almost believe those scientists that came with it were German but it actually shows that people if you have a little knowledge your confidence about that it's extremely high but if you actually have a lot of knowledge people who study it because they are surrounded by scientists who may know even more so even though they study it and they know a lot yeah. they actually have very little confidence about having a proper knowledge. So then a person with a little knowledge can run around and beat themselves in a chest and try to pretend like they know a lot. But while the person who actually does know a lot more will never do that because they feel like there is so much more in this field I got to study about before I can actually like make any kind of like proper judgment. Yeah. Unfortunately, those people end up not being hurt enough. And so then we're end up with a society of these people trying to educate others about about that. Yeah. Basically. I just Googled it. It's Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning. And it's a, yeah, it's a cognitive bias. Exactly. And it's so funny because the, <laughs> I love it. It's a, it's basically the headline here says, why stupid people think they are smart. <laughs> yeah. Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Like, 
I would normally know the word. Like I always remember like it's from Freddy Krueger because it's like so scary. So I always remember the Krueger yeah. part of it. Mm. Oh. I love it. Exactly. And I think it brings us exactly to the next question as well, because so you have now written five books. So you, it's your fifth book. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yes. I would guess that actually this could be also maybe one of the things that you may be writing about if I go by the title. So tell me a little bit about the new book and what it's all about. And if you're also talking about stupid people being smart. <laughs> Here you brain whisper, how about your mind's potential? And so it is about human brain. It's very much taken about a human brain and it's about how we can tune up our brain into its best possibilities and it focuses a lot on uh, our neurotransmitters and the way the brain functions and basically I would say it's kind of like counterpoint to psychology where people just talk about the problem and you talk it through I my approach it's a little bit more like I don't want to talk it through you're just doing the same neural pathways, except you're numbing them down because you talk about it so much to you numbing, but you're going through the same neural pathways. But if you want to go differently, how about like you focus on getting dopamine and you focus on getting these things because how you feel essentially is a result of your chemicals in your brain. Like who you are is who you are. That doesn't change. Your potential is your potential. But if your brain suffers from either going and making those connections, make, making those synaptical connections in wrong ways, you end up creating for yourself neurotransmitters that make you feel down, that make you, they don't make you feel good. And so like, if you focus on changing the chemistry of your brain, you can change how you feel if you change how you feel you can become more productive you can become better and do what you love and you can like change the things in your life a lot just by just by tuning up your brain and it still doesn't change who you are but it gives you the opportunity to to access your potential right how did you get started writing these type of books was it always like is it a lot of self-study you did or did you just, did you just figure out, you know what, I went through all of these things in my life and I want to, I want to get myself into different positions. So let me figure out first and now I'm going to write about it. How was your process on that? So this book about the brain actually follows my first book, Hear Your Body Whisper, How to Unlock Your Self-Healing Mechanism. And that was kind of my way of it has a lot of scientific studies but it's kind of part of it was based on my childhood like I said I spent a lot of my childhood ill and I had a lot of problems with different organs which is always funny because I was not allowed to like even like physically exercise heavy I had two sets of books one at home one at schools because I couldn't carry anything heavy And it's really, it was, it was kind of funny because like at first look, it was nothing wrong with me. I had a bad liver. I couldn't eat like normal food, but I was not like on a wheelchair. I didn't have no glasses or nothing. So like at like first look, I would be like this perfect normal child, which just happened to have like over 80% on average, like missed the days out of school. And Because I started traveling and because I so wanted to travel, I had to figure out a way to, to stay healthy. And 
we talked about prior to hitting recording about like the health insurance and traveling and like that's like one serious problem so like people are concerned and I just needed like to me it was like important to eliminate this concern because the desire to travel was stronger than how ill my body would get like and the body just like knew it like I would go and I would travel and I would come back home and I would fall sick when I get home Mm -hmm. but I would never get sick when I would travel like at the time of the travel I pulled through and I was just fine and like later on like I lived um, ate a street food in Thailand when I was like I know you're in Thailand now and I loved it and like always enjoyed just to eat the local street foods and and do these things and not be limited and I just maybe it was the mind over matter or something but like I managed I managed to put through and then I did meditations and I definitely my mom has two PhDs in biology one is in a plant science but like so I was always surrounded by a lot of biology and it was always of my interest so I would always study the body and then spending so much time with doctors and in hospitals, like you kind of learn about it anyway, because you get a lot of like you learn all your organs and I had a lot of them having issues. So that's how it came with the first books. And this book kind of wraps around and goes in between. I wrote like children book series that was homeschooling. So I did like chapter books for children. And so anyway, this one about the brain kind of wraps around and goes back and it goes deeper in a brain that was always of my interest. And my mom and passing away because of being hit when she was crossing a road by the car. And she ended up being four months in the hospital and she had a severe brain injury. And unfortunately, she never made it out of the hospital. And four months later, she passed away. So it made me dig into the subject of the brain on much more I wanted to it was it was almost cruel I always said like my meals would just play the cruel joke because I decided to write a book about the brain two weeks prior to my mom's injury and then this happened and meanwhile I wrote and published three other books because I just could not bring myself I start I became especially when she was in a hospital studying the brain obsessively and it changed the way how I wanted to view the book because at first I thought like, okay, it's just going to be like, we have this neuroplasticity and it's just becoming such a, you know, such a pop thing. It just became like, and, and more I look into it and, and then I was there. She was with a tangible brain problem that actually had a, it was a structural issue. It was nothing, there was nothing you could like really do about it. And so I, was thinking like, but there is the neuroplasticity. Everybody talks about it. Like it, it should repair, right? It's got to repair. And then I started to, and I was lucky by then that as an author, and especially with the first book, I had, I find a way to how either how to access or I was granted access because at that point I already had credibility as an author. So doctors and neuroscientists, they would actually talk to me. They would take the time. And I had a chance to talk to the best neuroscientists all over the world thanks to the internet and, you know, Zoom. And so I had a chance to interview a lot of people and I had a chance to really break down um, a lot of what's going on. I'm not saying neuroplasticity doesn't exist. It exists. I'm just saying that, like, in a lot of cases, it's overblown and there is they are, there is this huge amount of people who get felt, like, they get let down because 
they get fed this almost like a pop culture thing, like you can do whatever you want to do, but then, uh, you know, you got to wish it, you got to will it and you meditate and not put down meditation because I love it. And it's definitely part of it. So, and it has a huge brain reactions to it, but there is a certain ways that a lot of people approach it and they don't realize it will never, ever do anything for them. And then they're set. That I said in the end, then I go like, you know, I did like I did my vision board and I did and nothing and I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still my attention deficit disorder. It's still off the wall and I still cannot help myself. I still have to drag myself. I still have this. And so I looked much more into actually brain as a subject. And it was very interesting because I realized that like what is out there, it's about mind. There is very little out there for people to know about the brain itself, about the actual structure, about what the brain does and how it focuses on our bodies and and why we need it. And like once you actually try, and we know very little. The truth is we as people know, we know a lot more about every other organ because all the other organs are much more like mechanical I was just once like completely out of luck, blessed to sit next to a brain surgeon on a plane. I don't think he thought he was blessed to sit next to me because I didn't <laughs> shut up the whole time. But he was back flying over <laughs> on a transcontinental flight with me next to him. And so, you know, I asked him, I remember asking him, like, what do you find the most fascinating about the brain? And he said, like how complex and how mysterious it is because is it like any other organ it's like mechanical things you put some pipes together it does its function like it has like mechanical function and he says like i know it sounds horrible but like if you're a car mechanic it's just like you piping things together and that's what does every single other organ with brain we still don't know there's still so much weirdness about a brain that like makes no sense and it might work sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't work and even if we know more and now we have much more brain imaging technologies, which really sprouted out in the 21st century, we did not have these. And so in a past decade, we made more discoveries about the brain than we did in, a, in the in past 100 years. And from the 19th century, actually, brain was in the 19th century, it was quite a popular topic in the beginning of 20th century. Then it kind of went away. Then when like it kind of goes in, out, in, out, but it became really popular topic. So we're still learning about it, you know, a lot more. But I just like realized that I would like to have the chance to explain the brain problems. Plus, I promised to all these neuroscientists that I will actually bring the truth out there, that I'm not mm. going to do the do your crossword puzzles, you will not get an Alzheimer when you grow old <laughs> kind of things that I'm not going to be trying to bring out, which a lot of the coaches and people are trying to go and trying to sell. So trying to just, just trying to actually give the people a real perspective and offer them free solutions to their to anything that they don't really need to be buying a supplement they don't really need and actually most of the supplements don't really do anything anyway and there is no tests for them so yeah so I really really love that because um I've gone a very similar journey I was really extremely lucky to have a neurologist who was by the time I've got to him was when I was 18 just I think like half a year before of my cardiac arrest I got to meet him and by this time he was already 70 
72 years old, I think, 72 or 73. But he refused to retire because he said, like, he didn't just study his whole life, neuroscience and especially migraines and epileptic seizures and, and what it does with the brain and the nervous system to then retire by the age of 60. So by this time, he could have retired by 60 without helping other people and sharing his knowledge. And it's really interesting because he was one of the first neuroscientists in Germany who would specifically study migraines and epileptic seizures and the connections between the brain and the nervous system and also the nervous system in your gut, for example, right? And so Mm -hmm. when you look back, so I was 18 in 2000. Oh my God, when was that? 15 years ago. And so he was already 72 years and he already by then studied over 50 years uh, neuroscience. So that's now 65 years ago, basically. So there was in this field not much going on. And I was extremely lucky because he was so fascinated by me and my story and my brain because I was very different from all of his patients with migraines and with epileptic seizures because I was the only one that did not have any signs of depression or anxiety, not a single bit. And but I was one of the patients with the most severe migraines and epileptic seizures, which then even got me to this cardiac arrest. I died. I was clinically dead for 25 seconds. And he just couldn't make sense of it. He was like, I don't, I don't know how this works. How do you do that? And the crazy part is like my brain did not produce enough serotonin, which is one reason why I had all of these things. And he said, like, this just doesn't make sense. You need to have like you should have depression or anxiety or both. And I'm like, nope, not a bit. Like I'm not interested in that. And it's so funny. So our, our, I think by sometimes we had like almost bi-weekly meetings because of this cardiac arrest, obviously. And like, you know, we had a lot of tests, like brain waves, heart waves, like all of these uh, EKG, ECG, EEG, whatever you can do. Like, I don't know how often I was in some type of test. But the amazing thing was when I was then 19 years old and I had this cardiac arrest, I got to sit with him. And instead of him testing me, we were just talking. And we both used me as like the the guinea pig kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we chatted through. So he would test. He asked me basically to come in when I have one of those migraines with seizures And he said, like, I'm going to kick out all of my patients and we're going to test you and we're going to talk through what you feel, what you see, what you do. So I got to... Fascinating. Yeah, Did they do like fMRI on you? Or what did he do? Did they hook you up to like fMRI? Yeah, Mm -hmm. everything. I mean, I mean, I spent more time in like in, in any type of machines in the first 20 years of my life than I spent time in school, I guess. But it's, it's got to do with, I had the same like you, I had like kidney failure, but I also had this nervous system um, disease and they took even five years to find out what it is because it started when I was four and it was not known in the GDR. And then afterwards it was like, we don't know what you have. She's just pretending to be sick, you know? So that was a thing. But anyway, lucky the- that actually they tested you. Like you were incredibly lucky because so um, often I like, and that's I like even like 
people have problems with the brain, you go to the doctor and they just shove them pills and they like shooting darts in the dark. Yeah. Like, when you that have was... problems with your brain, people don't usually like you. You were lucky. You were very lucky to end up not with lucky. this gentleman. That, I, I got a shout out to my mom and my dad. That was no luck. My mom is a kindergarten teacher. In the TDR, you have to be a nurse to be a kindergarten teacher. My mom knew looking at me, I did not make things up. She pressured, and my dad too, they pressured the doctors to take me in and test me. There was no luck involved, I promise you. Mm. The amount of times that we got sent back and sent away, and even from the ER, non-tested, like the, the amount of times my mom would carry me into a hospital in the middle of the night or whatever, waiting for someone to test me. That was, I can promise you, there's no luck involved. My parents have... Mm, you're luck- well, then a- you have amazing parents. My parents are the best. And my sister, because she she's older and she had to go through it. And she was always very patient waiting there and not complaining. So I have a very amazing family in that terms indeed, yeah. But they would not let any doctors away with like, we don't know what they have. We don't know what's going on. So they were very pushy about that to find out what it is indeed, yeah. That's awesome because usually yeah. here what happens, you would like be able to go like, okay, these are symptoms. Let me try this pill. And I always find like brain is our most important organ. You don't yeah. have anything more important than brain, right? Yeah. If the brain doesn't function and your body functions, they actually pronounce you clinically dead. Like they will just harvest your organs if you're a donor or like pull you off the things. If any, any other organ fails, they're not going to make you dead. They're not going to just like kill you. But with the brain, if the brain is dead, you're done. Or how yeah. dead? If yeah. you're brain dead, like, then you're completely dead. Right. So the brain has like the most value. But yet, if you go to the doctor with a cough, they're going to take out like uh, the, the stethoscope. I forget how it's called properly in English. But they're going to listen to your breathing. They're going to do your test. They're going to take your blood test. But if you have anything wrong with your brain... They're going to just go like, okay, those symptoms sounds like try this pill. And if you're not going to collapse from that pill, they're going to see if it works or if it doesn't, they're going to send you some with something else. And the truth is, if you have any kind of brain altering medication, it's not like any other organ, it can like, it can kill you. It yep. can severely change the person. It can make the person yep. suicidal. It can kill yep. them. So the way how patients who need brain treatment are taking in consideration it's absolutely ridiculous yeah like in today's world to be to be there where we at right now and so anyway so i think it's 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 amazing that you did because we do have a lot of things that we can actually address yeah and they show on a brain right Right. they don't address them properly yeah which is why i was so extremely lucky to meet this person like his name is dr sega and i remember him i loved him and he was also the first person to acknowledge and literally to to say like everything you experience is valid everything that you go through is true everything because you know it, it for 19 years or for by this time 15 years because i started to have these when i was 4 everyone just told me you're making shit up in your mind this is not true it can't be that painful you're still going to school what's wrong with you like all of these things you know but people just didn't they couldn't imagine how extremely like excruciating pain that was but I didn't see another option than to just go to school I would have never been in school if it was for me to stay home with this pain because I had pain all the time so I was like 
well, am I going to go to school or am I just being at home crying? You know, like there's no way for me to stay home all the time. And there was no painkiller that worked. And so I just choose to not take any. And so that's why, and I was, by this time I was like seven. When I said like, I'm not going to take painkillers. They don't help me. They make me sick. I vomit from that. And so it's like, you know, all the things. But what I wanted to say and make the point is this guy was so amazing. And to sit by the age of 19 with a 72-year-old guy walking you through how the brain works and what's going on in your brain in the moment that I'm completely spaced out with so much pain that I couldn't even, I couldn't even see straight <laughs> anymore. I ran mm -hmm. against doors. I fell downstairs. But this was, it. I think it's the most amazing opportunity. And he's the guy who got me into neuroscience. I would have probably never bother too much to learn all of this if it wasn't for him and he's like he's one of my heroes to be honest and one of the reasons why I love neuroscience now and I love what we can do and you're so right people don't know the distinction between the brain and the mind and they gotta learn that they gotta learn how important that is because you can train your mind so strongly but we don't know what the brain can actually do in some capacity. People and scientists still don't know sometimes in what areas of the brain, what type of movements and changes and whatever is going on. Because as you said, the brain is still a mystery to us as, as humans, you know? So it's so incredibly interesting. I'm definitely going to get this book. When is it coming out? July 22nd, it should mm -hmm. come out, which is an International Brain Day. Yeah. So oh. it's coming out on International Brain Day. I cannot so wait. Of it, so it will Are you also going to have it as an audiobook? <laughs> yes, yes. That might not come out at the same time. It might be a right. little longer. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually, the first one was pretty well received as an audiobook. And I, like I said, like I have an amazing narrator who sounds right. like me without the accent. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> That's what my husband, he says, like, that's like you without the accent. <laughs> so, so, which actually would be like really, really great because I love her. She's awesome. And yeah, that's when it's out. But let me ask you, like, now you got me like so curious. You said that the doctor, he let you come in when you were in pain because mm -hmm. you were not producing enough serotonin and you were the only case that wasn't depressed. Mm -hmm. with epilepsy which is interesting because i haven't studied it like so much specifically except of the effects of the thc and cbd on epilepsy that yeah but like i didn't really know that it's a common thing that uh people with epilepsy have anxieties and they have depression and now when i think about it my like really good friend from my childhood she does have and she does suffer from that too so so did he figure out what was wrong with you did he figure out if you're not producing serotonin you're producing something else that offsets that or were you able to like what is that what was your brain's secret to cope mm -hmm. with it so here's the thing so first of all there is definitely which is why in many antidepressants you have uh, serotonin releasers in there which is why um the serotonin levels can definitely show whether a person or not is depressed or not, or gets depressed or not. So disconnection between serotonin and depression is very real, which a lot of people, I don't know if you heard, I know in many countries it's blacklisted, but 5-HTP is a 
natural, half natural, not so natural, I don't know, serotonin um, releaser. Inducer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, actually, you cannot produce serotonin. You will release it. Um, so it's very, it's, um, mm, so apparently you cannot produce more serotonin that your body would anyways produce. But the, the question is, does it release the serotonin or not? So basically mm -hmm. my nervous system would hold on to the serotonin and just not release it. And that's why I would have a lot of migraines and also epileptic seizures, but the epileptic seizures never came alone. They only came with the migraines. So we found an answer, but it's nothing that people would ever imagine. And it's very interesting. So okay. the, reason why, <laughs> the reason why I did not get depressed and why I didn't have anxiety is because I would not attach myself to, I didn't attach myself to the identity of being sick as a kid, although everyone around me tried, like you're the sort of sick kid, whatever. But my, I found something outside of myself that I created an identity with. And what I mean is this. When I had my kidney surgery that saved my life, I was three and a half years old. That was, that was the month before the wall came down. And I had to have this kidney surgery because I was about to die from blood infection and everything. I had reflux on both sides. As soon I was out of the hospital, I basically became a ballerina. I've seen my sister dance. I've seen like... This I had an obsession with ballet. I still have it. If and ballet was not a sport for me. It wasn't just fun. It was a. It was literally a lifestyle. It was an obsession. If I was not dancing, something was really wrong. And I had it to the point where I remembered a lot of days, a lot of times. I would dance and it would totally space me out and I would not realize that I had a migraine attack and epileptic seizure and I would break down. Like this, the dancing ballet would create so much dopamine and endorphins mm -hmm. that it would completely shut down the acknowledgement of pain in my body. My body would just be like, whatever, you know, oh, you're in so much pain and you have epileptic seizures and you're shaking. Don't worry. As long as you dance, you're fine. And I had like my dance teacher talk to my mom about it. I, I mean, I wasn't obviously there, but I remember like she had this conversation. She said, like, I don't know if that could be dangerous one day if she just breaks down all the time here because my mom had to pick me up quite often. And so when I got to the point with my neurologist, he said like that this is exactly what you know about now, people know about the flow state of the brain. Um, if you can get yourself into this flow state, I think like one of those psychologists in the 80s has been coining that, right? If you get mm -hmm. into this state, you forget everything about pain, being hungry, being uncomfortable, whatever, and your brain is just really concentrated and focused on this one thing and, and feels this joy and bliss and the progress, progress of it. And I just found this in ballet. And you cannot, you like just, you couldn't wow. get me to 
And I just danced for everything. That was so cool because actually I had a very similar story to that. Uh, and by the way, the, the proper coined term uh, of the flow, the, the scientific term, it's transient hypofrontality. Oh, and yeah. the neuroscientist tra- transient because you it's it changes, it's not permanent state, it's transient mm-hmm. and hypofrontality it's because your prefrontal cortex kind of knocks out and uh, it's inactive practically for the time being. And Arne Dietrich the, is the scientist that I actually interviewed who coined the term that I interviewed and I have a whole chapter with the interview when I talked to him in my book. I love uh, it. So, so that was cool. But I actually did with the dance. It's so funny because the reason why I couldn't carry and do anything heavy was because of my liver too, because I have a liver disorder. And when I went to high school, I was my parents put me in like boarding high school. So I would only come home on weekends. And that mm-hmm. was my first opportunity to be away from parents to like that I could finally move. I could finally do things that made me tired because everybody was afraid if my if I got tired, the, the liver would give up. Yeah. And so it would give up. And I would start throwing up and I would start having issues. And because my blood was so bad because the liver wasn't cleaning it. So they're like everybody's focus was on not to getting me tired, not to get me panting, not to get me anything. And then I was in a, I was 14. I was, uh, and I went to high school. I started to live there and I signed myself to a, like a I started living by that and it was almost like that my parents didn't know and it was in the afternoon and I would just go through there and and it, the owner of the dance studio, he said like, though I will at the end of the school year, it was beginning of school year and the end of the school year, he said, I will pick two people out of those courses who will join my professional dance crew and the professional dance studio. And at the, I remember that time I decided, I'm like, I'm going to be one of those two people at the end of the year. And so in my boarding school, during the time I would have to study instead of, because I wasn't little to start doing the splits and things. I never done it. And here I was 14 years old and like pushing myself and stretching and stretching was good because that wouldn't make me tired. I would just, I would only hurt. and would be nothing else through it. But I pushed myself through that year with zero dance education to actually the end of the year. And they really picked me up. And then I and I started dancing and I found myself like you found yourself in a ballet. I did ballet too, but I found myself in tap dancing. And so so the tap dancing became my thing that like when there was a step I had to figure out, there was like nothing that could go wrong with me because all my focus was just on trying to make all those tap moves and place all those tap moves. And so... I, I could relate to you more than you know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I heard that from a lot of dancers already, if you really, or athletes as well, you know, um, I think whether it's swimming or I had a friend uh, when I was in, in primary school, we were best friends based on only because we both were athletes. She was um, ice skating, like the the um, fast skating on the ice and I was okay. um, I was uh, already semi uh, professional ballerina and because we were both like high performing athletes we were bonding so well through that because she had training every day I had training every day on the weekends you know I had tv gigs or stage gigs or whatever she had competitions and it was like incredible because we both know we were just out of space in our worlds, but we were connecting in school so well through that. It was amazing. Anyways, uh, we're already well over time. Uh, 
but that doesn't matter. I have two more questions. Let's wrap them mm -hmm. up. Um, those questions I ask everyone on the, on the podcast. So, um, especially for you, I'm really interested to see what you say. First, what does efficiency mean to you? Efficiency means, uh, wow, it's very hard to put it in a term. That's like you put me on spot. To me, it's to <laughs> make things done in uh, the amount of time, things that I need to get done, whether they're, no matter how pleasurable, like I guess in efficiency you can have in things you enjoy and the things you don't enjoy. So it's a good good idea to be efficient, especially at things you don't enjoy so much, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, But efficiency means to me to really focus clearly and get things done, whatever it needs to be in a shortest amount of time. I love that. And the last question before we wrap it all up, if you have to push the reset button on your life or business, but you keep all of the knowledge, which of the three things would you keep doing over and over again to get back to success again, whatever success means for you? I think I'm like grateful. Like, I don't know if I would want it to, because I think everything, whatever was good or bad, it led me to where I am and I'm happy to be where I am right now. So I definitely, it's funny, like the, the three main things in my life that went through my life and I would never want to give up would be, would be dancing that like right now during the, the quarantine, I pick up electro swing, which at the age of 42, I watch it. Like, it's like such a, it's just such a like 20 year olds do it because it's so fast, but it feels like because I did tap dancing and it's like so fast with legs, it's really fun. So dancing books and traveling, those three things it. have been very con consistent things in my life that made my life so much better so much better and it's always fun to get myself lost in either one of those i love it Odakara, thank you so 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 much for coming on the show it was amazing to have you and i'm really excited for the book to come out as well and before we leave I obviously want to know where people can find you and the book. And well, I don't need to ask what they can find there because they can find the book. <laughs> yeah, the book is on Amazon, but they can find me, my name, otakarakletki.com on my website. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, but usually the Facebook is kind of more of my, of my place, but otakarakletki.com and my website. Awesome. Definitely on Amazon. You can get all my books on Amazon. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on the show and having all the time for us and sharing all of these amazing stories. I really loved it. And we definitely have to chat more about the brain. Um, that's going to nerd me out. And for everyone who's listening, you know where to find these links. They're below in the show notes. If you listen on Apple or on any of the podcasts as uh, apps, my God, that was too much talking apps don't forget to leave a review and all of the five stars so that more people can find otakara and me geeking out about brains and dancing and if you haven't yet subscribe and um share this goodness don't forget that sharing is caring caring sharing is caring absolutely make sure <laughs> 
You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.